Now my task is not to try to bolster those fake BS numbers I came up with in the outset, but trying to give you what the actual answer is. Hello, everybody. You're listening to All the Responsibility, None of the Authority, the podcast for product managers, product marketers, innovators, entrepreneurs, and anyone else who wants to be more effective and more successful at creating and selling products. I'm Nils Davis with my friend and co-host Rob McGrody. Our guest today is David Benetti, a multiple times founder and entrepreneur with several successful exits. Lately, he's been driving the concept of innovation options, which is our topic for today. It's a new financial framework designed to help product management and finance get on the same page when talking about investment and innovation. So David is a Berkeley grad. He went to UCLA for his MBA. I first met David at a recent product tank meetup where, despite my initial expectations as a, because this was a finance topic, thought it would be a little dry, David really lit up the room with his personality and the presentation. Not only is he delightful and engaging as a presenter, his ideas can make a big difference for product managers. They'll help us be more effective in talking about the financial goals of our innovations and in getting them financed. Our conversation with Dave was fascinating and in-depth and long, so we're presenting it in two parts. This is the first part of the conversation. So it's a great pleasure to welcome David to the podcast. Thanks for coming online with us. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. I guess we should start with the fundamental problem you are looking to solve. David, where did innovation options come from? Well, the concept of innovation options really came from a problem that most product managers who are dealing within innovation, innovation as a as a as sort of, you know, framework where we're having something new that we're trying to create and the future is uncertain. You know, technology is uncertain or the markets are uncertain, but there there's really a high degree of uncertainty involved in the activity in which we're doing. And so typically the way that we do most financing for most projects, uh, regardless of whether new or existing, is that we say, okay, I'm gonna make some prediction about the future and it's gonna take me such and such amount of money to be able to bring that vision to light. And then that product is going to grow and it's eventually going to return a substantial amount of revenue, which, oh, by the way, exceeds the amount of money that I'm asking for right now. And so everybody's going to make a tidy profit and hooray, success, right? But the problem obviously is, is that, that, that first piece that I started with, which is how certain are you that those future profits are going to occur? If you have a high degree of certainty about that, then that's great. You make sure that you have a degree of investment that's less than the amount of money you expect to make in the future and everybody's happy. Of course, when we have high uncertainty, whether there's a disruption in the market or we're planning something completely new or it's a completely new market that we're heading into, that uncertainty really tugs away at that concept of this is how much money I need right now because you can't, by definition, be certain that it's ever going to return a profit. And so the concept of innovation options was simply saying when you are dealing with innovative approaches, innovative markets, innovative idea, innovative products, and the future is uncertain, you can no longer hold as constant this idea that I'm going to return this much money in the future. And instead, we need to view it as a conditional, as, as literally an option, mm -hmm. where we want to investigate this opportunity. And if the opportunity seems promising, 
we will go ahead and pursue it. And if the opportunity is not promising, well, then we're not going to pursue it because maybe that isn't the best use of corporate funds or VC funds or, or what have you. And so this really is analogous to what we see in, in, in traditional financial options, where the, a financial option is just a, a straight definition, is the ability to set a transaction in the future at a price that you set in the present. So in the future, I'm going to want to potentially do this, and I will secure the option, uh, which is the right to do that, but not the obligation to engage in this future activity. And so options are really designed to delay investment decisions until we know more about the market. They're designed to delay a decision until that uncertainty can be removed. And because of that, it has this entire framework for option pricing and option value and how you how you manage them and so the whole concept of innovation options really flowed from that concept of we want to delay this main investment decision until we know more about the future because it's really uncertain mm -hmm. so it, it, it sounds a little like so I, I love a lot of the t topics and concepts you're bringing up and we'll, we're going to circle back to a lot of them but one of them is i think of maybe something like a feasibility study um, you know, you're, where you might traditionally say, oh, I don't know if I can really do this technical thing. Let me do a fees Let me spend a little bit of money to figure out if I can technically do it. Is that an example of a maybe an ad hoc innovation option? Uh, yes, absolutely. Um, although there is, we do need to break down between the concept of what is technical uncertainty and mm -hmm. what is market uncertainty. Sure. So uh, let me give you an example of technical uncertainty. Uh, Anti-gravity. Right. Uh, Anti-gravity, hard technical problem to solve, um, but it also has very low market uncertainty. You know, if you could create some anti-gravity machine, it's it's very likely that somebody's going to pay you for it, or curing cancer, or teleportation. Right? These are all things that are very low market risk because, like, if you f if you come up with a cure for cancer, someone's going to buy it. <laughs> the, the 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 question is, it's a really hard technical problem as opposed to uh, things that have high market uncertainty but are technically really, really easy to accomplish, right? So um, uh, Airbnb for cats, uh, and I want to build a cat-sharing website, right? Right. Very obvious that I could build a website, very low technical risk, could probably do it this afternoon, uh, very, very uncertain as to whether or not anyone will pay me for this cat-sharing service, mm -hmm. right? And so feasibility studies, generally speaking, conduct the technical uncertainty portion of it. Like, mm -hmm. are we actually going to be able to build this? And they'll go build prototypes and do it in the lab and do it in the field and what have you. What is the analog for market uncertainty? Today, typically, we'll do things like conduct surveys or focus groups or build analyst reports and sort of make these suppositions about what the future will hold. But we don't actually test it. Mm -hmm. We're not actually producing a product and putting it out in the real world. That's where the Lean Startup comes in because it gives us an entire framework to do exactly that. Um, but, uh, but, but innovation options are designed to uh, give the framework for, if we're judging this market uncertainty, what is it worth to go off and conduct that study? Mm -hmm. like, like, like how much, how much is that activity actually worth today? Because absent an option framework, we only view that in one way, as a cost. Because we're spending money, and we can't promise a return, so that's a cost, right? Whereas the options say, well, it might return something and it might not return something, but that choice itself represents value. And so that's what we price.
referring back to the lean startup, of course, we have the concept of the MVP, the minimum viable product. I'm going to learn something about the market. I'm going to do a test to learn about the market in some right. way. That would be like a feasibility study for the market. You've sort of created a framework to say, here's the value of this MVP. Yeah, exactly right. And so I think that the, 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 it really is a great contrast when we look at it in terms of what their traditional approach is for making these investments. So, so most traditional approach, linear approach, is called NPV, net present value. And it's a form of discounted cash flow where basically we're doing exactly what I said before. We're making some prediction about the future, about what something will return. We discount that in, in terms of a little financial, you know, hocus pocus here, but it's called discounted at a cost of capital. But, but basically money in the future is worth less than money today. Sure. When you discount it by that rate and then you say, and this is the amount of money that I need invested today. And if the amount of money that you're going to make in the future exceeds the spend, what you spend today, properly discounted, you engage in the project, right? So that's, that's fairly, again, fairly straightforward math. Right. But if you now say, well, I don't know what it's going to return in the future, mm -hmm. right? So the only reasonable answer you can give there is, is zero, really. And so then when you put that into the standard calculation, well, I don't know what I'm going to make in the future, so I better call it zero. And I know I'm going to spend money today. That will always be a negative NPV. And, and literally the, 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 the time where this came into play was that when we were discussing the concept of M MVPs in front of a large industrial company, and the product manager came up and said, this is a great approach, lean startup. I love this lean startup. What do I tell finance? And the response from one of the practitioners of lean startup was, don't give them one. It's a trap. Right. Which is which is a wholly unsatisfactory <laughs> answer to this, you know, product manager from GE who is saying, wait a minute, like I can't go to finance with a negative MPV or just tell them to go pound sand like I'm going to get fired. Right. Um, and so we need to be able to give them something that says, sure, like it might be zero. It might be something else, but it's still valuable to the firm to take that approach. Why? Because we're going to have this learning about the market. And that learning about the market in a, in a real sense represents the new potential value we've created by taking away all of the ambiguity around that decision. Because we're taking the uncertainty and we're making it certain. That's value. So by comparing uh, maybe a GE who has a very long time cycle or release cycle, right, for their potentially hardware, potentially software, CPG doesn't necessarily iterate on the, the biweekly cycles that some software companies do it seems like this would be valuable but potentially onerous to do the calculation to do the tracking to do the long-term planning for something that may only take a month to test out i can see it being super valuable for something that is a year or more in duration but how do you make this useful for a shorter term regardless of the industry like the key here is is to be faster than your opponent. Like there's that, that funny joke about, you know, two guys in the African savanna and they see a lion down on the plane and one of them starts to put on his running shoes. And a friend looks to him and says, what are you, stupid? You can't outrun a lion. And he turns back and says, I don't have to outrun the lion. I just have to outrun you. And the whole perspective there is that when it comes to lean startup, like the fundamental strategy of it is I need to be faster than my opponent in, in learning about the market, right? Today, the way that we canonically do innovation is we want to be smarter. We want to be able to be better at predicting the future. I want to know what that hot trend is. I want to know what the next big thing is going to be. 
And as humans, we are terrible at making predictions about the future. Like our track record is horrid. Like the example that I always like to use is, is McKinsey, who are otherwise very smart and engaging, unbelievably wonderful people. But, you know, remember their like 1990 uh, assessment of how many cell phones there would be by the year 2000, right? No more than 800,000 cell phones by the year 2000. That was going to be a niche product, not going to be mass market. They were only off by two orders of magnitude, right? And entire companies ignored that entire space because they made a prediction about the future that was just wholly wrong. And so the perspective here is not try to get better at predicting the future because, look, we have a terrible track record as it. Not, not just in business, but as a species. We're just awful. But the thing we're spectacular at is pattern recognition. You drop us into a new environment and pound us with all these stimuli, and we're suddenly going to make sense out of the chaos. We don't even know how we do it. We just do. So the whole fundamental strategic approach to lean startup is, look, put us in that situation and, and make us go faster than our opponents in terms of recognizing the patterns while they're out there trying to say, well, this is what's going to happen in the future. So it makes sense to say that this is a concept or a framework that helps bring the future projection into a near state, something that we can, as a species, grasp more easily? Uh, partially, it's, it's, it's really just meant to cut it up into smaller points, right? So if you cut mm. it up into smaller parts and you're taking smaller chunks, then as opposed to taking these one gigantic big bet, then you're taking a lot of small bets. That reduces the variance around that decision and variance is the measure of risk. So you're, you're reducing the riskiness associated with any one given action. And that's why it's relevant to GE. It's relevant to larger companies. Like I have a construction company whose sales cycle is measured in years that is using innovation options. And the reason they're doing that is because it gives them the ability. It's even more effective for these long scale ones, right? The, the, the software, uh, it, the, the timescales are actually shorter than the, than the uh, transaction management that's associated with the options. <laughs> but for these larger companies, like they need to move faster than their opponents. And if they can do four or five different experiments while their opponent is running one big project, like if their opponent gets it right, great. But like, again, the track record of them actually doing it is actually quite low. Like mm -hmm. when I go in and I, and I have my discussions as a consultant with these companies, I say, look, what's your, your, your whole fundamental basis for innovation is based on getting this right from the outset. Like you're trying to make a prediction at the exact moment that you have the least amount of information. And your entire success is dictated by how right you got that prediction. So how often are you right? And the average usually is around 2%. Like some people say 10%. Some people have said it's like zero, like we're never right. Right. Um, At least they're honest. Yeah. Well, well and you know, by that point, they're actually relatively honest because we start going through all the projects that have failed. Why have they failed? Because they made a prediction. Well, that prediction was wrong. And so they blame Gartner. Like, but Gartner can't get it right either. They know even less about your market. Like the, the whole point is that you cannot make predictions of the future under conditions of uncertainty. That's like not possible. Like ipso facto, that's not possible. So why do we continue to do all of our innovation projects based upon that one thing that we as a species are terrible at? Is there a reason to use a structured approach such as innovation options, even if you're not talking to finance, if you're sort of trying to make decisions just within product? Maybe I've got some funding to work on something and now I want to decide of the things I could work on or how I want to allocate that? It's probably overkill. But again, like what you said is like most of the time what, what product manager are trying to do. How do I get the funding for do, to do engage in this in activity that is fundamentally uncertain? Mm -hmm. 
like normally the way they do that is they spin some wild tale about how successful it's going to be. <laughs> You've been there, right? Right. And guess what? Finance knows you're lying, right? Yeah. And they, like they're they're not dumb. They know you're lying. So they of course discount your project really heavily because it's very risky. You know that they know that you know. So now you have to bump up your revenue projections even further, right? Mm -hmm. And so and the, the whole point of innovation becomes the process of tweaking your Excel spreadsheet to a number that's big enough to catch somebody's attention, but not so big that it actually laughs you out of the room, right? And, and look, you've done that. I've done that. We've all done that. Or, or we have mm -hmm. friends that have done that at other companies, right? <laughs> I, I, know, I know a guy. Yeah, I know a guy, right? I know He's a guy who problem, did that. Right? <laughs> Yeah, so, so like, what Innovation Options says is, can we please stop this madness? It's, it's not even like we're fooling anybody. Like, the whole industry knows that everybody is lying to one another. But this is how these billion-dollar disasters become billion-dollar disasters. <laughs> right, right, right. Right? So, because everybody is just sort of like wink, wink, nod, nod. And the truth never comes into the equation. Right. And ultimately... It will it will become <laughs> reality. Like we can't hide the truth. Reality wins. Reality wins, right? So why don't we just acknowledge that from the outset and mm -hmm. say, yeah, it could be a billion dollars, it could be zero, it could be anything in between. Let's right. just acknowledge that fact and work from the perspective of truth. Now my task is not to try to bolster those fake BS numbers I came up with in the outset but trying to give you what the actual answer is. Right. Right. Which is actually a good time to, to maybe jump in and, and kind of give the folks listening a visual to the extent we can <laughs> about what this framework does. And I'm, I'm looking here at a couple of the visuals that Dave, you had used before. And for anybody who's not familiar with an option, the concept of creating the value of an option is basically taking exactly what you said. It could be a billion dollars, could be zero, could be anything in between and trying to map out each of those different possibilities along a really complex, basically decision tree or, or outcome tree. And what you end up looking like is, you know, you start with one point, it splits to two or three, and then can, from there it splits to three or four each, and five or six stages later, you could have 50 potential end outcomes. Um, but the whole concept ends up, ends up looking very much like a, a typical decision tree. And one question that I had specifically related to this, you've mentioned, Dave, uh, several times that you want to move and make a decision at each and every one of those stages, whether it's, you know, phase one, phase two, or here's the value today. Is it better or worse? Uh, maybe you can walk us through that and then uh, would love to understand how you break out each of those stages. Right. So, so as you, as you've mentioned, um, the concept of this particular model for people that are financial geeks it's called a trinomial lattice um and and it basically looks just like a christmas tree on the side right and the christmas tree has the sort of starting point at the top and as you go down you branch off into all of these potential different outcomes and so if you can imagine this this christmas tree that has all these ornaments each ornament represents a potential outcome for your uh for your business as you move through time and so our point is that when you start at the beginning, you look and you say, okay, this is all of the range of possibility, zero, a billion, everything in between, and at every point in time, what it could potentially be. And in terms of the math, then you just add all those up. Uh, you take what percentage they are as they reflect what, what they are at, at the point of the tree, was it what they represent the overall value of the project. You add them all up, and that's the value of your option. That's an overly simplistic approach but 
it's it's roughly the it's it's roughly what's happening, right? What our goal now is is our, instead of our goal being I'm going to go prove to you that the prediction I made in the future is right, I'm going to say I don't know what the future will bring. It's now my job to find out. And as you go along the project, you're running all of these tests, and at each point that you actually release a test, at each point that you conduct a, a minimal feasibility study, you, you release your MVP. You're actually testing what the market will actually accept, and you're inputting that, that response to that back into the innovation option. And that gives you a price not based on, well, here's what it could be hypothetically, zero to a billion, you start to go test and you say, hey, I got some good results back from my test. It's closer to a billion than it is to zero, right? Or you go release some tests and everything goes crappy. And it's, you know what? It started off, it's closer to zero than it is a billion. <laughs> and you continue to go and run those experiments as fast as you possibly can to continue to fill out all of the things that were unknown but now are known. And the process of turning those assumptions into knowledge is valuable to the firm, right? Why? Because mm -hmm. you're taking uncertainty and you're removing the uncertainty. How does the funding fit into this? So if I um, have this Christmas tree, the sideways Christmas tree, the decision tree, and say it's the time frames are quarters, do you, do you essentially ask for enough funding to get to the through the first quarter? And then when that, when you learn something, you you then prune the tree in the appropriate way because you either learn that, yeah, there's some potential here or there's no potential, and then you get funding for the next quarter, is, would that be a typical way or is, or is it a little bit different from that? No, it's a little bit different because what you're trying to do is you're saying each option gives you the ability to, 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 to investigate uh, for, a, for a given period of time. And you want to iterate several times during that investigatory Period. Let me let me give a, let me give you a better example. That's one from a real option in the future. So an, an actual option that you would use in the real life is people that buy a house. So people that buy a house will typically get what's a mortgage lock, right? They'll get a mortgage lock. Mm -hmm. And what a mortgage lock does is, okay, I'm shopping for a house and I've got this potential loan and interest rates are currently at four percent. But you know, I'm a little nervous about the presidency and I'm concerned that interest rates may go up in the future. So what I'd like to do is I'd like to get a mortgage rate lock that will say, okay, your interest rate is now set at four percent. And what happens there is that the homeowner spends some money, spends a couple thousand dollars or whatever it is, to buy the right to close their loan at 4%. And if interest rates rise, well, they got their loan at 4%, right? Doesn't matter what interest rates go up to, they're going to close their loan at 4%. And if interest rates go down, well, then they can get the better rate, right? right. So again, we use that option, a mortgage rate lock, to remove all of the uncertainty associated with our transaction. Right? So we set the price in the future, the price is 4%, and we pay some money now, that's called a premium, a couple thousand dollars, for the right, but not the obligation, to close our loan at 4%. Every day during that option period before the mortgage rate lock expires, you have the ability to close the loan at a lower rate. Right? Mm -hmm. So you're going to look and you're going to open the paper and you're going to say, interest rates are at 4%. Well, I'm not going to do anything. Interest rates are at 4.1% the next week. Oh, you know what? I'm glad I got that lock. Two weeks later, interest rates are at 3.8%. Oh, hmm, you know what? I'm going to go get the loan at the cheaper rate. Why? Because I'm not obligated to close the loan at 4. Mm -hmm. I only have the right to close it at 4 if I want to. And so you, if we 
draw that analogy into the innovation space, you're going to start to explore. You're going to do an MVP and you're going to say, oh, you know what? I think that there's actually some money here because this, op this opportunity is great. So the value goes up. Or I think that actually this is not a good opportunity. I've, I've tested it out and nobody likes this product and the value goes down. When the option expires, that means that basically the money that you've been given to explore the opportunity runs out. And you've been given a certain amount of money to explore the opportunity. That's the option. That's mm -hmm. the premium. That's the period of the mortgage rate lock. You have the ability to go figure out the answer. And once you can make the decision at any point between the time you start and before the time the option expires, which is when the money runs out. So what, what this framework does is it doesn't necessarily tell you what you need to spend because maybe it'll cost you less to actually figure out the answer. Like, mm -hmm. like your MVPs may cost less than the premium, but you're under no obligation to actually proceed. And all it simply does is say, look, this, the, the potential to explore this opportunity for this new widget, whatever, whatever you want to define it, is worth today to the firm $100,000. If you spend more than $100,000 finding out the answer to the question, you're destroying value. Hmm. If you spend less, if it only will cost you $50,000 over the course of six months to run three experiments, then you're creating value to the firm because the option is worth 100000 but you're only spending 50000 And so hmm. the difference between the 100000 that it's worth and the 50000 that you spend mm -hmm. is the ROI of the option itself. Okay. And so this this point of discussion comes before you ever start anything. You're essentially making a pitch to finance saying, I've got this idea for a widget. Given the value of the option because of the inputs that you put into the equation, exploring the possibility of this widget is worth $100,000 to the firm. I'm going to do it for 50 grand. That represents an ROI to the firm today of $50,000. And so finance says, okay, that makes sense. Now, we're not promising that it's worth a billion dollars, and we're not, we're, not, we're not doing any of that. We're simply saying to explore the opportunity mm -hmm. is worth real money to the firm. Right. And so we, we turn that thing that used to be cost into value. Yeah, right, right. And so, um, so that leads to another uh, set of questions, which is really how you initiate this conversation with finance, which which previously has been used to talking about the ROI of a project as a whole. Um, and it, it sounded like you sort of gave us a framework. Here's here's this project I want to do. It's going to be worth a billion dollars if all goes well, but there's uncertainty, so I can't give you an ROI on the project. But I know that doing six months of research on this is worth, has an ROI of a hundred grand or has a har has is worth a hundred thousand dollars to the company based on the innovation option concept and i want fifty thousand dollars to explore that would that be the sort of the conversation or is it is it more subtle than that no it's not it's not more subtle than that you the, you have to change the frame of reference so the, so the way that i do this when i approach finance is i use again we have to try to use as best as possible analogs from the real world Mm -hmm. So whenever I have a finance person that's a little bit skeptical from this approach, the first question that I ask, assuming that they're older and are married, is I say, do you have life insurance? And the person typically says, yes. And I say, well, how much did you spend on your life insurance last year? 
And they say, oh, I don't know, $5,000, something like that. I said, okay, what was the ROI of your life insurance policy? And then they sort of look at you like, uh, wait a minute, what? And I was like, sure, how much, how much did your life insurance policy pay you last year? And like, well, it didn't pay me anything. And I was like, well, then you lost $5,000 on that. Why do you keep investing in life insurance? It's got a terrible return. And they sort of look at you like, that's the silliest question I've ever heard. I don't buy life insurance to get a return. <laughs> like, I don't buy life insurance hoping to die. I buy it because I, I'm considering the possibility that that might happen. And if it does, then I want to be prepared for my family. And I was like, great. So that's what an innovation option is. It's not life insurance for you. It's profit insurance for the company because it's exploring the possibility that your existing profit flows will be disrupted or that we have a new potential profit flow to explore. And it's not necessarily something that's going to pay off, but the whole point of it is that you want to explore these possibilities within an optional framework rather than demanding you know what the future is going to be and predicate your value based on that. So if you can get finance to buy into the concept that life insurance has value, even though it never pays off, then you have some hope. Wow. Some great stuff. We learned about the ridiculous way we mostly go about trying to justify our product innovations using ROI and a great alternative David presented using innovation options. And David walked us through the basics of the technique and gave some advice on talking with finance and other stakeholders. In the second half of our conversation, we cover how innovation options help companies understand the risk of not innovating, how to use portfolio theory to understand innovation options, and David provides some good examples of companies using innovation options. And of course, David provides our usual three things you can start doing today to start putting these ideas into practice. You can find out more on the show notes page for this episode at alltheresponsibility.com. We have some examples of the innovation option sideways Christmas tree, as well as links to David's site and the innovation option site where you can define your own innovation option decision tree. This is Nils Davis for Rob McGroarty and David Benetti and all the responsibility, none of the authority. Special thanks to our producers, Liz Latanzio and Richard Fleming, who help us keep the wheels on the podcast. Stay tuned for part two of our interview very soon now. Thank you.